We go now to the ministry of the Word, and I will read from Amos 6, verses 4 through 7, and Luke 6, 17 through 26. That is the sermon text for today. Amos 6, 4, and Luke 6, 17. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Amos 6.4 Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Let us go to Luke 6, verses 17 through 26, where we hear the words of our, of our Lord. Uh, here He begins to preach to His people, uh, and presents to them teaching that is very essential to their future life in the kingdom of God. Luke 6, verse 17. And he came down with them, and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and healed them all. And He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Excuse me. For you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, and behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation." Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. We come now in our study of Luke's Gospel to what has been called the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, this sermon is very similar to the Sermon of Jesus that is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I misspoke last Sunday when in passing I referred to this sermon in Luke's Gospel as the Sermon on the Mount. I only realized my error after the fact. So to set the record straight, Luke records for us the Sermon on the Plain. For in Luke 6, 17 we read, And he, that is Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place. And then in 6.20 we read, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, etc. So Luke records for us a sermon that Jesus preached in a level place or on a plain. 
As I have said, the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew 5, 1 through 7, 27, and the Sermon on the Plain, as recorded here in Luke 6, 20, and it runs all the way through verse 49. They are very similar, but they are not the same. And one might wonder, why are they different? The answer, I think, is quite simple. Jesus preached a lot. He had standard sayings that he would repeat over and over again, but with some variation. Matthew and Luke were both concerned to record for us the sayings of Jesus, but that does not mean that they were both recounting the exact same sermon. In Luke, we appear to have an abbreviated version of the sayings of Jesus, and I am not saying that Luke abbreviated them, but that Jesus here on this plane or on this level place presented an abbreviated version of the sayings that uh, he elsewhere um, elaborated on with more detail. It seems that Jesus delivered an abbreviated version of what we call the Sermon on the Mount when He came down from the mountain to this level place with His disciples. So as we turn now to Luke's Gospel, I want us to pay special attention to Jesus' audience. Some have erred in their interpretation and application of these sayings of Jesus. In fact, you might be surprised at, at the variety of interpretations that are drawn from, from this a very famous sermon, this one and the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that many of the errors that are made in interpretation can be traced back to a failure to identify Jesus' audience. Who was Jesus preaching to? That is a very important question for us to answer. Who was Jesus preaching to? Well, back in Luke 6.12 we read, In these days He, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night He continued in prayer. And when day came, He called His disciples and chose twelve from them, whom He named apostles. After this, uh, we have a list of the names of the apostles. And then in verse 17 of Luke 6 we read, And He came down with them, that is to say, with the twelve, and He stood in this level place, with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So I wonder if you can picture the scene. You have Jesus with the twelve apostles, and it is not only the twelve who were with Him, but many other disciples of Jesus were with Him too. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. So there were 12 main disciples of Jesus. These are called apostles. But there were many other disciples too. Luke, in fact, describes them as being a great crowd. So there were lots of people following Jesus in these days. And Luke also mentions a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. I think one thing that needs to be acknowledged is that those who came from Tyre and Sidon were most likely Gentiles. Uh, this, this should pique our interest, I think. It's, it fits with the theme that has been building in Luke. Jesus is the Savior not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles too. He is the Savior of the world. And so it was not only Jews who followed Him in the beginning, but some Gentiles also. This great multitude came from Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, we are told. So they did not come only to be healed physically and spiritually, but to hear Him. Uh, we have already witnessed this in Luke's Gospel. The miraculous things that Jesus did were performed in part 
to demonstrate that his word was true. And in verse 19 we read, And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and and he healed them all. And finally in verse 20 we read, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, etc. So if I were to ask you the question, To whom did Jesus preach in this Sermon on the Plain? Who was His audience? What would you say? The the answer would be this, I think. Yes, there was a great multitude who came to hear Jesus. Not all of them were devout disciples of His, no doubt. Some were coming to Him because they merely wished to be cured. Some were coming to Him because they were curious. But the text is very clear that Jesus called His disciples to Himself... And He set His eyes on them, the disciples, and then He began to preach to them. So this message was for the disciples of Jesus. The same, by the way, can be said of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.1 says, Seeing the crowds, He went up to the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus spoke these words to His disciples. Stated negatively, He did not direct these sayings to the non-believing world. He was not preaching to the poor in general, to the hungry in general, or to those who weep and are hated in general. No, He was speaking to His disciples when He pronounced these blessings on Him. You see, these people were blessed. Please hear me, brothers and sisters. These people were blessed not because they were poor, hungry, mournful, and hated. They were blessed because they were disciples of Jesus. And it was because that they were the disciples of Jesus that Christ could say to them, For yours is the kingdom of God, for you shall be satisfied, for you shall laugh, and for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So, we must see and understand that there is no inherent blessing in poverty. Do you understand this? There is no inherent blessing in poverty. There is no inherent blessing in hunger, or in mourning, or in persecution. But there is blessing, that is to say, there is true happiness in Jesus. Those who are poor, hungry, mourning, and persecuted in Christ are blessed. For in Christ we have inherited a kingdom. In Christ we shall be satisfied and laugh. In Christ, and through faith in Him, we do have a great reward in heaven. And it should also be said that those who are poor, hungry, mourning, and persecuted because of their allegiance with Christ, or to use the language of Luke 6.22, on account of the Son of Man, they are especially blessed in Him. You see, that was the reality for many who followed Christ in those days. They left everything to follow Him. Uh, Do not forget what was said about the apostles who followed after Jesus in Luke 6.11 and in verse 28. The fishermen left everything and followed Jesus. And so too, Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, left everything to follow after Jesus. They walked away from their livelihoods to follow after Him. They came immediately into some form of poverty and they were despised and rejected by men. So poor were these disciples of Jesus that they had to pluck grain from the fields even on the Sabbath day to satiate their hunger in those days. 
So I wonder if you are beginning to see why it is vital for us to identify Jesus' audience. This teaching, friends, is not directed to the world. Yes, some things that are said here about the non-believer, there are some things that are said here about the non-believer in these, in these sermons. And yes, there are truths stated in these sermons that may be applied to the non-believer, but the sermons are directed to the disciples of Jesus. This teaching is not directed to the non-believing world. And I must say something else. Neither is it directed to civil governments. I don't want to spend much time on this, but I've heard some say that Jesus' teachings found later in this sermon regarding loving your enemies, being kind to the evil person, judging not and forgiving, should be applied by our civil governments today. The idea here is that Jesus provides civil governments or nations with a new kind, gentle, uh, a new kind and gentle civil law or ethic to replace the old, uh, harsh and judgmental civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel. This view must be rejected. In fact, retributive justice is one of the only things that civil governments are to concern themselves with. You can see Romans 13 about this. Also, civil governments are to defend the nation over which they rule against enemies. Jesus is not revealing a new civil law here. He is not telling governments, uh, civil magistrates, to judge not in a civil sense or to love their enemies in a civil sense. In fact, there are no civil laws given to the New Covenant people of God, for the New Covenant people of God are not a nation, but are sojourners and exiles on earth. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Common civil governments today have the moral and natural law of God as their guide, just as they always have, and civil magistrates are to use the sword that God has entrusted to them to punish wrongdoers and to reward those who do good. They are to concern themselves, as I have said, with retributive justice as it pertains to crimes against persons. And it is God's moral law that informs us concerning what is just. So, while the Sermon on the Plain or Mount might apply to individuals who serve within civil governments in a personal way, it is certainly not a new civil law. And there is one more thing that I should say, even if it is just in passing, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain and His Sermon on the Mount are not a replacement for the moral law of God as revealed in nature and summarized in the Ten Commandments. Yes, it is true, when Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray, when He calls His disciples to come up with Him, and when He comes down and begins to teach, this is to remind us of the book of Exodus and of Moses' activities on Sinai. There Israel entered into a covenant with God, and there God's old covenant people were given a law to govern them, first the moral and then civil and ceremonial laws. Jesus is presented here in Luke's Gospel as a second and greater Moses. And yes, having called His disciples to follow Him, and having appointed the twelve apostles, which is to remind us of the twelve tribes of Old Covenant Israel. He does present them with kingdom ethics. But it is ridiculous to assume that these ethical teachings of our Lord were intended to replace the moral law of God, which was written on Adam's heart in the beginning, on stone at Sinai, on the hearts of God's people under the New Covenant at the time of 
regeneration. See Jeremiah 31. And do not forget that it is by this law, the moral law of God, that all men will be judged on the last day, if not in Christ. Read Romans 1 through 3. In fact, the rest of the Scriptures are very clear that the moral law of God, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, is ever-binding. Christ did not relax the moral law in the least, not in His way of life and not in His teachings. These sermons of Jesus that we are about to consider, at least the one here in Luke, are not opposed to the moral law. They are not intended to replace the moral law, but rather they perfectly agree with the moral law as it is summarized in the Ten Commandments. In fact, the moral law of God is in fact undergirding uh, these ethical teachings of Jesus. So, so what is the sermon on the plane? What is it? Here we find ethical teachings from Jesus for His disciples as it pertains to life in His kingdom. Here Jesus tells His followers how they are to live in this world as members of His new covenant and citizens of His eternal kingdom. Dear friends, please hear me. And if this is the only thing you take away from this sermon, um, I, I would be happy with that. I hope you get so much more out of it. But this is the main thing that I want you to hear. Please hear me. The Christian faith, the Christian faith, is clearly a way of life. This is the first principle that I want you to draw from our passage. The Christian faith is a way of life. Now, please do not misunderstand. The Christian faith is not merely a way of life. Before we can live in the way that Christ has called us to live, we must believe the truths that Christ has taught. We must believe the truths contained within Holy Scripture, truths about God, creation, man, sin, and salvation in Jesus Christ. We must believe what the Scriptures teach concerning who Jesus is and what He has done to accomplish our redemption. And we must also turn from our sins to trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so I say the Christian faith is not merely a way of life. It is a system of doctrine that must be believed. And it begins with heartfelt repentance and personal trust in Jesus. It begins with a confession that He is Lord. But after that, the Christian faith is a way of life. Those who follow Jesus, those who believe His words, who trust in His work and say that He is Lord, are called to walk in His ways. We are called to obey God's moral law, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, just as Christ did. Indeed, it is this law, the moral law, that is written anew and afresh on our hearts by the Spirit in regeneration. And those who follow after Jesus are also to live according to His kingdom ethics, as communicated here in the Sermon on the Plain and in the Gospel according to Matthew in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. The Christian faith is a way of life. As a bit of a side, did you know that the first Christians called themselves followers of the way? Did you know that? This name for the early Christian church is used in Acts 9, 19, and 22. Why would the early Christians refer to themselves as the way? Well, for one, they believed in Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed to be 
the door through whom all must enter to be reconciled to God. And so Jesus is the way. He is the door that God has provided for us through which we are able to enter into His presence. And so for the Christian, uh, they are in this sense followers of the way. They are followers of Jesus. Secondly, Christians do not only trust in Jesus who is the way, they are also committed to walking in the way or on the road or path that Christ has modeled and commanded. Therefore, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a follower and learner of the way. The Christian faith is a way of life. Now here is the second principle that I want you to draw from our text. According to Jesus, according to Jesus, walking in this way will require a particular perspective, outlook, mindset, or philosophy. Whatever term you prefer, you you may use it. But here it is clear in the text that is before us today that Jesus began His ethical teachings, ethical teachings for life in His kingdom, by presenting His disciples with a particular outlook, mindset, or philosophy. And, and what is that outlook? Well, according to our passage, those who follow Jesus are truly blessed. They are truly blessed, even if they are poor, hungry, sorrowful, and despised. And conversely, those who are rich, full, happy, and highly esteemed now and in this world are in fact in a miserable condition if they do not have Jesus as Lord and Savior. This seems backwards, doesn't it? It seems upside down. But Jesus is here teaching that those who wish to follow Him and walk in His way must have this mindset. They must see the world, and they must see themselves in this way. Notice that in verses 20 through 23, Jesus declares his disciples to be blessed. Notice what I said. I did not say that Jesus tells his disciples how to be blessed. Rather, he declares that his disciples are blessed. I wonder if you can see the difference between the two things. It's a very important observation to make. It is a matter of fact that those who have faith in Christ are blessed. I want you to look at verse 20 as I read it again. And Jesus lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. And then a bit later He says, Blessed are you who are hungry now. And then a bit later, Blessed are you who weep. And then a bit later again, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So Jesus here declares that His disciples are blessed. It is a matter of fact. I want you to listen to what the commentator J.C. Ryle says about this. Let us first notice in these verses, who are those whom the Lord pronounces blessed? The list is a remarkable and startling one. It signals out those who are poor and those who hunger, those who weep and those who are hated by man. These are the persons to whom the great head of the church says, Blessed are ye. We must take good heed that we do not misunderstand our Lord's meaning when we read these expressions. We must not for a moment suppose that the mere fact of being poor and hungry and sorrowful and hated by man will entitle anyone to lay claim to an interest, interest in Christ's blessing. The poverty spoken of 
is a poverty accompanied by grace. The lack is a lack prompted by faithful adherence to Jesus. The afflictions are the afflictions of the gospel. The persecution is persecution for the Son of Man's sake. Such lack and poverty and affliction and persecution were the inevitable consequences of faith in Christ at the beginning of Christianity. Thousands had to give up everything in this world because of their religion. It was their case which Jesus had specially in view in this passage. He desires to supply them and all who suffer like them for the gospel's sake with special comfort and consolation. Those who follow Jesus are blessed, brothers and sisters. This is true, even if they suffer greatly in this world. And this is especially true if their suffering comes as a result of their leaving everything to follow Jesus. The question is, do you believe this? That is the question. Do you have this perspective, this outlook, this mindset or philosophy? Do you agree that the followers of Jesus are blessed, that they have every reason to rejoice and to be happy even if they suffer many afflictions in this life on account of Jesus, the Son of Man. Brothers and sisters, with the passing of time, I've grown more and more convinced that if Christians are to walk faithfully in the way, then they must have this mindset. It's no coincidence that Jesus begins His ethical teachings with this. He demands that His followers first adopt this mindset. If you wish to follow Me, you must adopt this mindset. In other words, if you do not adopt this mindset, you will not last long. If a disciple of Jesus lacks this mindset, or for they are uncertain about the fact that followers of Christ are blessed, even if they suffer for His namesake now, then they will have a difficult time walking faithfully in the way. They will they will definitely have a difficult time walking in the way happily and with peace and with joy in their hearts. At this point, we must observe that Jesus did not merely declare His followers to be blessed. He also gave the reasons. So these are not empty words of blessing being uttered by our Lord here. Do you understand what I'm saying? This isn't just someone standing up uh, to be a nice guy. The Lord bless you. I say that. Blessings, God bless you. Uh, and those are not empty words either. I am asking that the Lord would bless you, of course, in Christ Jesus. Uh, but this is not Jesus just standing up to be a nice guy. Uh, blessed are you, you know. No, he, he is pronouncing blessing upon His people. He is declaring them to be blessed, but with, but with reasons given. Uh, this blessing is, is rooted in fact... So let us read verses 20 through 23 again and pay special attention to the phrase that begin the phrases that begin with the word for. The word for indicates that the reason for what has just been said is about to be given. Blessed are you who are poor. Why? That makes no sense. Jesus, that makes no sense. Blessed are you who are poor? Why would you say such a thing? And here is that word for. For yours is the kingdom of God. So a statement of fact is made. Blessed are you, there is a pronouncement or declaration made, and then the reason is given. For yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, to, to say it differently, the kingdom of God belongs to you. Blessed are you who are hungry now. For 
you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In this passage, Jesus commands His disciples to adopt this mindset. They are not to root their happiness and joy in the here and now and in their present circumstances. Instead, they are to remember the past and they are especially to look to the future and they are to root their happiness there. They are to set their hope and their happiness on Christ and on the eternal reward that Christ has earned for them. First, Jesus urges His disciples to look to the past when He says, "...for so their fathers did to the prophets." We should remember that Jesus and His disciples were being severely criticized by the Pharisees and the scribes, that is to say the religious elite of Israel. And so Jesus reminds His disciples that their fathers, that is um, the people of Israel who lived under the old Mosaic covenant, often treated the prophets like this. The prophets of old, the true ones, were often mistreated by their fellow Israelites. They were despised and rejected even by their own people. And for an example of this, you may read of the trials of the prophet Jeremiah, how he was beaten and imprisoned by his own people in Jeremiah 20 and 37. Jesus reminds His disciples of this history to show them that they are in good company when they are mistreated on account of Christ. And we who live now, after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ may add Christ Himself and His apostles to this list. They all suffered. Christ warned His disciples that they would suffer for His namesake. See Luke 21.17. It is no wonder then that Christ begins His ethical teachings by demanding that His disciples adopt this mindset. Without this mindset, they could not endure. So look to the past, brothers and sisters. Remember that Christ, the apostles, and the prophets of old were all despised and rejected in this world. And yet, how do you view them? How do you view these who I have just mentioned? Christ, His apostles, and the prophets of old. Do you consider them to be blessed people? Or do you consider them to be miserable people? If you have faith, you will say that they were and are the most blessed of all people. And so Jesus reminds His disciples of the faithful and blessed prophets of old to show us that we are in good company when we suffer for His name's sake just as they did. In this Sermon on the Plain, Christ taught His disciples to not root their happiness in their present circumstances, but to remember the past. And He especially directed their attention to the future and to their eternal reward. He reminds us that if we are united to Him by faith, then we are truly blessed, for ours is the kingdom of God. Here is a reference to the eternal kingdom of God, the new heavens and earth, He is telling His disciples that this kingdom is theirs through faith in Him. Christ came to establish this everlasting kingdom. See Daniel 7.27 and Luke 1.33. Those who have faith in Him and follow in His way are brought into that kingdom even now. And they will be brought safely into that eternal kingdom when Christ returns at the consummation. And there, in eternity, we shall be satisfied. There, all of our mourning will be turned to laughter 
and everlasting joy. And so look to the future, brothers and sisters. Look to Christ and to the eternal reward that He has earned for you. You are to root your happiness in that. The soil of your present circumstances is dry. It cannot nourish you with true happiness. And if it is not dry now, it soon will be. But the soil in Christ's eternal kingdom, which He has earned through His shed blood, will never dry. For it is watered by the river of water of life, which will flow forever and ever from the throne of God and the Lamb. Revelation 22.1 And so we must look to the future, brothers and sisters. We must look to Christ and to the eternal and everlasting reward that He has earned for you. And you are to root your happiness in that reality. So does this mean that Jesus' disciples will experience nothing but sorrow in this life? Does this mean that all of our comfort and joy will be experienced only in the life to come? And the answer is certainly not. Indeed, disciples of Jesus do enjoy many wonderful blessings and comforts in this life. And I do suspect if we were to pause now and ask everyone to testify concerning the blessings that they enjoy in this world, all of you would give thanks to God for many good things. You would stand and you would happily say, God has blessed me richly. He has provided me with wonderful food and clean water and shelter and clothing and family and friends, not to mention the great measure of peace and prosperity that we continue to enjoy in this world. Does God often pour out many earthly blessings on His people in addition to the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus? Uh, Yes, He does. But here Christ shows us that even when His disciples suffer poverty, hunger, and persecution, they are still truly blessed. For their greatest rewards and enjoyments are not here, but they are in heaven. In fact, Christ teaches His disciples that they are to have this perspective and believe these things so strongly that they will be able to rejoice even in the day of persecution. It's interesting, this text is filled with adjectives that describe the reality of things. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. These are not imperatives or commands, as if, as if Christ said, Be blessed! <laughs> That is not what this text is about. But these are adjectives that describe reality. Blessed are my disciples, Jesus says. These adjectives are not to be obeyed, but believed, you see. You cannot obey these things. They are descriptions. and So these things cannot be obeyed. They can only be believed. And that is what we are being called to do in this passage, to see this, to perceive this. But there, but there is a string of imperatives or commands found at the end of this passage. In verse 23. Rejoice in that day, Christ says. There is a command. Rejoice in that day, He says. And we might ask, well, what day is Christ referring to? It's on the day mentioned in verse 22, when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, Christ commands. The word rejoice is in the imperative mood in the the Greek. It is a command. And then he also says, leap for joy. So there is another imperative or command. This too is a command for us. You are to not only rejoice in that day when you are persecuted for my namesake, 
you are also to leap for joy on that day. Can we just pause for a moment and acknowledge the fact that to the non-believing world this sounds like the behavior of a crazy person? Just let's be honest about it. Doesn't it? So in that day, when you are persecuted, when you are reviled, when you are hated by all, here is what you must do. Here is what I am commanding you to do as a disciple of mine. You are to rejoice. You are to leap for joy. To the non-believing world, this does sound like the behavior of someone who is detached from reality. It sounds like the behavior of someone who is living in a fantasy world. How else could they respond to something so awful in such a way as this? But in fact, Christ is calling His disciples to see the world from His eternal perspective. Here Christ is inviting His disciples to see things for how they really are. You see, the world is blind to these realities. They could never imagine rejoicing in the day of persecution on account of the Son of Man. It makes no sense to them, but it is because they are blind to these eternal realities. And in this passage, Christ is calling His disciples to perceive this reality. This is reality. And for this reason, you are blessed. And for this reason, you are to respond in this way, even on the day of persecution. I said there is a string of commands found in verse 33. The first is the word rejoice. The second is the word leap. And the third is the most important For it is the foundation for this behavior. It is the word behold. Here Christ commands His disciples to look and see that the reward is great in heaven. This reality is the reason for our rejoicing. It's the reason for our rejoicing always. And it is especially the reason for our rejoicing in the face of persecution and in the face of suffering. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold Your reward is great in heaven. This passage, brothers and sisters, is about mindset. Here Christ commands His disciples to have an eternal mindset. They must, if they are to walk faithfully with Him, they must, if they are to have His joy and His peace. Perhaps I could press you now with just a bit of application before we even come to that portion of sermon. If you are lacking joy in the Lord, if you are lacking peace in the Lord now, perhaps one question you need to ask yourself is this, have I adopted this mindset really and truly? Or am I still perceiving the world as non-believers do? If you are a disciple of Jesus, then you must see the world and yourself in this way. There is one more point that needs to be drawn out of this passage before we do move to some suggestions for application. This point will be brief To live according to the way of Christ, Christians must see that they are truly and eternally blessed in Him, and they must also see that those who do not follow Christ are, in fact, under God's wrath and curse. This perspective is clearly set forth in Luke 6, 24-26. Here Jesus pronounces woes upon the non-believing. The first word is a word of contrast, but. So this is meant to be contrasted with what has just been said about the followers of Jesus. 
But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I, I need not say much about the particulars of this passage, for the meaning should be clear to you as you contrast it with the blessings passage we have just considered. But in brief, Jesus declares... Those who do not follow after Him, perhaps out of a fear of losing the wealth and status they now enjoy in the world, as being in a state of intense hardship, distress, disaster, and horror. Uh, That is what is signified by the word woe. Woe to you. Woe to you, Christ says. And this word uh, does uh, signify all of these things. It, It It signifies a person being in a state of an intense hardship, distress, disaster, and even horror. It's a very strong word. And when Jesus used it, He was exclaiming that those who do not follow after Him are in a very pitiful, hard, and horrifying state of being. Even if they be very rich, comfortable, and highly esteemed in this world now. And just like with the pronouncement of blessings... The pronouncement of woes are rooted in reality. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In other words, you have experienced the height of your comforts. You have experienced the height of your comforts. It will not get better for you, but only worse, and indeed much worse, in eternity, if you do not have Christ as Lord and Savior Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. The hunger that Christ speaks of here is an eternal and spiritual hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Again, I say this is eternal mourning and weeping. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So then these rich and highly esteemed ones who refuse to align with Christ out of fear of losing their worldly riches and honor are in bad company, historically speaking, for it was the false prophets that were often honored within Old Covenant Israel. I'd like you to listen once again to the words of J.C. Ryle. He puts things beautifully, I think, and very succinctly. As he speaks about this passage, the woe passage, here, however, no less than in the preceding verses, we must take care that we do not misapprehend our Lord's meaning We are not to suppose that the possession of riches and a rejoicing spirit and the good word of man are necessarily proofs that people are not Christ's disciples. Abraham and Job were rich. David and St. Paul had their seasons of rejoicing. Timothy was one who had a good report from those who were without. All these, we know, were true servants of God. All these were blessed in this life and shall receive the blessing of the Lord in the day of His appearing. Who are the persons to whom our Lord says, Woe unto you! They are the men who refuse to seek treasure in heaven because they love the good things of this world better and will not give up their money if need requires for Christ's sake. They are the men who prefer the joys and so-called happiness of this world over joy and peace and believing and will not risk the loss of the one in order to gain the other. They are those who love the praise of man more than the praise of God and will turn their backs on Christ rather than keep in with the world. 
these are the kind of men whom our Lord had in view when He pronounces the solemn words, Woe, woe unto you. He knew that there were thousands of such persons among the Jews, thousands who, with, notwithstanding His miracles and sermons, would love the world better than Him. He knew well that there would always be thousands of such in His professing church, thousands who, though convinced of the truth of the gospel, would never give up anything for His sake. To all such He delivers an awful warning Woe, woe unto you. So friends, things are not always as they appear. Though the rich and highly esteemed ones of this earth may appear to be the happiest of all people, in fact they are in a miserable condition if not in Christ. For they remain under God's wrath and curse and they will have His wrath poured out on them at the final judgment, unless they turn from their sins to trust in Christ and follow Him. But of course, their perspective would need to change if they were to follow after Christ. They would need to come to see Christ and the kingdom of Christ as being far more precious than all the pleasures of this world. I'd like to conclude now, brothers and sisters, by making five brief suggestions for application. Firstly, I wish to speak directly to our young people, and even to those who are new to the faith. So, I want to ask you, young people, and those new to the faith, do you have this perspective that Jesus commands? Do you see the world according to the truths that Christ has here revealed? To be very direct, when you think of the rich and the powerful, and the famous in this world. What do you think? How do you perceive them? What's going on in your head as you, as you think about them, or as you look upon them with, with your eyes? What is going on in your mind? Do you think of them as being the most blessed, the most happy and satisfied people in the world? Or do you think of them as being in a miserable condition, if they are not followers of Jesus. And what do you think when you consider someone who is poor and unpopular and yet strong in the faith? How do you see them? How do you perceive them? Do you look at them and say, oh, what a pitiful, sorrow, sorry and, and unhappy person? Or do you look at them, the one who is poor and unpopular and yet strong in faith? Do you see them as blessed and happy? And so I am really pleading with our young people to begin even now to see the world in this way, to adopt the mindset that Christ here commands, that we would look at the world and the people in this world and the things of this world with this mindset, that to be very wealthy and to be very famous in this world and to have all of these creature comforts that come along with wealth and fame, it is trash. It is trash in comparison to knowing Christ and having eternal life in Him. There is no happiness in this, at least not in a lasting way. There might be a, a momentary kind of happiness, a superficial and empty kind of happiness, but not true blessing. To be faithful and to be a happy follower of Jesus in this world requires this perspective. Secondly, I wish to speak to those who are more advanced in years and mature in Christ. And I want to say to you, 
and even to myself. Do not let your guard down, brothers and sisters. Even if you gained this heavenly and eternal perspective in the past, do not think that it won't be challenged. It may be that you or someone you love comes under affliction in the future, and the evil one will tempt you with evil thoughts to question the goodness of God towards his people. Even the psalmist Asaph was troubled by thoughts like these. And in Psalm 73, he is honest about this. He begins with a a statement of truth. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then he goes on to be transparent about the inward struggle he was having. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There he is honest. This is no young person. This is no new believer. This is a seasoned believer here, Asaph. And he is confessing that he was, he was tempted very strongly at some point uh, to be envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And after a long description of the prosperity of the wicked, he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then, listen to his words, then I discerned their end. Or to use a word that we have used in this sermon uh, this morning, I perceived their end. Truly, he says, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors. So here in Psalm 73, we have an example of one who was mature in Christ, who was tempted. He almost lost the heavenly and eternal perspective that he once had. And how did he regain it? By coming into the temple of the living God and contemplating these truths again in the light of God, the final judgment and eternity. To those who are mature in Christ, I say, be sure to maintain this heavenly and eternal perspective that you now have. Thirdly, I wish to speak to those who are suffering affliction now and to say to you, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are blessed. It is a fact that you are blessed. You might not feel it now or you might not be perceiving it as clearly as you did before, but the fact cannot change. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have faith in Him, then you are blessed for yours is the kingdom of God. You shall be satisfied there. You shall laugh there. Indeed, all of this is true. Your reward is great in heaven, and you are blessed now, not by the circumstances of your life, perhaps, but because you have Christ and because you have God, your roots are to be sunk down deep into them and into your eternal reward that has been earned by Christ Jesus, our Savior. Fourthly, I wish to speak to those who are experiencing prosperity and comfort in this life now. What should I say to you? What should I say to those who are rich and who are comfortable in Christ Jesus? In fact, it is not difficult to know because the Apostle Paul has told me what I am to say to you, not by way of special revelation. Don't get nervous about what I'm claiming here. But in Scripture, Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy saying this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see what Paul says here? Notice how he does not tell Timothy to rebuke the rich for being rich. He does not tell Timothy to tell the rich to do away with their riches either. In fact, he implies in this passage that the rich ought to enjoy what they have. But he warns them not to be arrogant, not to set their hope in these riches of theirs. He warns them to be humble and to do good and to be rich in good works. They're to be generous and ready to share. They are to store up for themselves treasures where? In heaven. Treasures in heaven. There they will have a good foundation, an eternal foundation upon which to stand. Fifthly and lastly, I wish to speak to those who are listening who have not yet believed upon Christ to follow Him in the way. I pray that you would come to see yourselves as being in a most miserable and woeful situation. Apart from Christ, we remain in our sins and under God's wrath and curse. Apart from Christ, we will be judged on the last day, and we will go to eternal punishment. But in Christ, there is the forgiveness of sins, there is reconciliation with God, and there is the sure promise of life everlasting in the new heavens and earth which Christ has earned. And so, for those who have not yet believed, who have not yet followed Christ in the way, I do plead with you, to turn from your sins, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, confessing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and then to go on walking in the way. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is a light to our feet. We thank you for this hope that you have provided for us, this way that you have opened up, Christ Jesus the Lord. Uh, we thank you that we have this eternal and unshakable hope and joy and blessedness in Christ that cannot be taken away from us. Lord, I do ask that you would help us with our perspective, that we would perceive these truths that have been presented, that we would believe these things strongly in the mind and in the heart, so that we cannot help but continue on the way that has been set before us. God, give us this gift, we pray. And for those who do not yet know Christ, I pray that you would give them this gift. Draw them by your word and spirit to faith in Jesus the Messiah. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.